thank you for joining the second installment of the Azala. In this second episode, Andrew gives a fascinating overview of the workings of the wholesale segment. He also gives his view and insights on the differences and commonalities between managing teams and strategic leadership across the Middle East and Asia regions. Andrew also talks about how his time at the helm coincided with a plethora of activity in the marketplace and milestone developments in the distribution space. Andrew also shares his wisdom and takeaway learnings, having played an integral part of the integration between hotel beds, Tariqo holidays, and GTA. Having escaped the rat race, Andrew talks about some of the projects he's been commissioned on through HW Consulting, which have ranged from large-scale private equity assignments, hotel group consultations, right the way through to smaller turnaround businesses. The episode concludes with Andrew explaining in practical terms how he and his wife Jules managed to realize a monumental lifestyle change and achieve their long-held joint dream of owning a hotel. This hotel business is the Margaret River Holiday Cottages that over the past two years, they've completely repositioned through capital investment, as well as bringing their unique personalities and hospitality vision to Western Australia. It's a mighty impressive vision that has already seen the introduction of a fire pit, outdoor movie screenings, and lots of friendly animals that guests can meet and feed during their stay. Enjoy, part two, De Uzala. turned gatekeeper having led the life of a hotelier you then became a significant figure in the wholesale space with a senior role in Dubai with Gulliver's could you talk a little about Gulliver's and also for the unacquainted describe what role the wholesaler plays in the hotel intermediary and travel landscape that's a great question Gareth and it's a question that I've been asked many, many times as I've sort of interacted with, with everyone from hotel chains to, to other intermediaries and the like, and, and, and even off to the consumer, what's the role of, of the wholesaler? And if you think about your classic elevator pitch, um, you know, when you can sort of consolidate what, uh, what a company does in a very short sentence, with a travel wholesaler, it's a little bit challenging, right? So for those that, are, that aren't really across what the wholesale world does, ostensibly, um, when a consumer makes a booking with either a travel agent or possibly online um, or through a concierge service perhaps or a points redemption, there is often a, an intermediary or a travel wholesaler that sits between um, the booking agent and the supplier, in this case, the hotel. So not every um, booking agent, whether that's an online travel agent or a retail travel agent, um, has a direct relationship with every supplier and that's the role of the wholesaler is to is to potentially bulk buy or to own a relationship with the supplier that they can then connect with 
with many travel agents and online travel agents in, in, in hard to reach places. Excellent. And then you were promoted to an elevated role and moved your base from Dubai to Singapore. How did you enjoy the chain change both personally and professionally? And what were some of the commonalities as well as the differences between Asia Pacific as well and the Middle East as your role straddled the both? Well, I really enjoyed the change and, and probably the biggest uh, change for me professionally was that, that I had a, a more of a strategic seat at the table with GTA in terms of determining where our future business model would be going. How would we evolve with a, with a very fast paced evolving um, distribution landscape? And I really enjoyed sort of getting more involved in the strategy. Um, but equally, I, I was able to play a, a, a role in terms of helping us as an organization um, understand, well, how would the suppliers react to some of the changes that we're making? Um, because ultimately with no supplier, with no hotel, with no inventory, an intermediary has no business. Um, and I think it was really about challenging our thinking to make sure that, that we became a supply-led organization um, and that we could work and partner a lot more with the suppliers, the hotels, rather than just be sort of a, a deliverer of business, if you like, or be, be customer-led. Um, so our customers actually really became the hotels and the suppliers over, over time. And I equally really enjoyed the leadership um, part of the role, um, moving from the Middle East where I'd, I'd led big teams um, to, to Asia Pacific where I, I led bigger teams but was exposed to different types of, of leadership. And obviously strategic leadership can be a little bit different from sort of high performance direct team management. Um, and I really enjoyed, enjoyed that change. In terms of some of the, the big differences, I think related to leadership was, was really fascinating, right? Because in the Middle East, you're dealing with this, this eclectic mix of, of characters in, in different positions. It's a, with, with living in Dubai, 88% of the population are exp expatriate. Me in Asia Pacific, so if, if the Middle East was 88% expatriate, I mean, what was really interesting about Asia Pacific was, was this kind of theory that, that Asia requires one strategy. And what became very clear to me very quickly is that, is that Asia might be a term of reference as a continent, but there is, there is a huge amount of nuance and difference, both culturally and um, economically across the whole of Asia. So what might be suitable for the Korean market may be fundamentally different from the Indonesian market, yet together they're bucketed as Asia. And the more I dug into this, the more it, it really confronted me, right? Um, and also from a leadership point of view, was recognizing those cultural subtleties um, across those different nationalities. And sometimes in a, in a marketplace where, where you're new, you have to learn to read those signals um, you have to understand what's the conversation that happen, happening at the water cooler that you might not truly understand because of language barrier, but you, you have to find a way to understand it um, to be able to, to get the cut through that you need. So I found that the, the really big difference for me was having to adjust a communication strategy um, to make sure that I recognize that the different cultures receive messages in, in very different ways. Um, and I had to recognize that but as an organization, and I had to champion for this, 
that we just couldn't keep talking about our Asia strategy. Because I think if an organization references their Asia strategy, if they don't have underneath that a very clear strategy in Korea or a clear mainland Chinese strategy or a clear Indonesian strategy, then they're really missing the point of how the Asian marketplace or that continent actually functions. And I sometimes wonder that if, if it wasn't geographically named as a continent, you know, would they, would they really have that closer relationship from a, from a business point of view? That was a huge learning for me. Very interesting points, Andrew. Your time at the top seemed to correspond with a hive of activity in the distribution marketplace. For example, the growth of China, Expedia aggressive, aggressively expanding their affiliate network, Booking.com introducing Booking Basic, and then with private equity money, your competitors at the time, Hotel Beds and Torico, really being formidable sparring partners before the integration brought you together. What, what were some of your big wins and big learnings during this time? I think that there was a very um, clear view from, from all of these larger intermediaries that, um, that the mature markets of, of Europe and the like and the US were not necessarily where the key growth drivers were. So if people were to, to grow, if businesses were to grow, they needed to tap the volume markets, particularly mainland China, India and the like, and then a lot of the emerging markets coming out of out of the, the Asian continent. And I think that with that, the, 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 big, uh, the bigger players decided that they needed to tweak their strategies um, to recognize that, that actually the distribution landscape in, in every country is different and in every continent is different. And how you define a retail travel agent or a wholesale travel agent in uh, Thailand or Korea uh, can be very different from the clear definition that, that um, is available if you, if you look at jurisdictions like, like Australia and New Zealand, where it's very, very clear cut. Um, and so these players entered and needed heaps of different tactics to be able to, to try and take that, that significant share of business. And at the same time, consolidation was occurring. Hotels were investing more in technology. They were really starting to ask themselves the question of, well, do I really need to have a contract with 100, 200, 300, 1,000 different travel agencies or groups or consortia or the like around the world? Or could I work with a handful? And what's the benefit and the trade-off with consolidation? So I think all of those players were trying to leverage growth of technology, growth of marketplaces, and the opportunity to take share through consolidation. Following the integration, you landed the most senior sourcing job. You must have been particularly proud given the competitive jostle for the position and also given that in general hotel beds typically had had more personnel moving into the key positions. Yeah I was really proud Gareth and I think that that was that was overall rather than it just being sort of a, a reflection of me I think it was more of a, a reflection of, of GTA's position in um, the Asia Pacific and the Middle East and Africa marketplaces where we were the the dominant player. And I think reputationally, we, we were very, very strong at the time, we being GTA. We, as I, I mentioned earlier in the, in the discussion, we really focused hard on, on putting the supplier into the center of the conversation. And through that, we started to collaborate much better with hotel chains, 
regional players, big hotels and the like, and really earned ourselves a reputation as, as being supplier centric. Um, and, and when we came together as, as, as three organizations merging together as one, I think um, that reputation was something that, that the new organization wanted to leverage. Um, and I think equally for me, I think what I was most proud of was the opportunity to, to continue this passion of mine around leadership across non-homogenous teams. So by, by that, I mean non-homogenous, both from a national um, sort of heritage point of view or a cultural point of view, but equally coming from three different organizations that from one day to the next went from being fierce competitors to trying to be friends in a ballroom. And that was, it was a huge undertaking for us as an organization, three very different company cultures and backgrounds and uh, trying to bring them together as one. I mean, for, as, a, as, a, as a leader, I mean, that was a, a professional goldmine for me. So yeah, how tough was that integration of the three companies? And if you were to consult anyone going through the process, would you have any recommendations or learnings you'd pass on to them? I think, first of all, we have to, we have to understand um, that not everyone sees the world through our lens. So I think, um, as, as we, we would always say in, in looking at it from a, from a story perspective, is really understanding um, what are the different people who are coming into that organisation, what are they feeling when they come in? Um, and what's the feeling we want them to have? And is, is there a gap? Um, and I think that, that we have to recognise that, that in, in leadership that we are always operating with, with one foot in chaos and one foot in clarity. And it's recognising that, that those teams really want to have black and white answers when, when you've only got grey to give. So I think it's really important to, to have the right people around you that, that can operate with ambiguity that can operate in, in grey and that recognise that the world's not black and white. So surrounding yourself with, with a good group of people and, and managers um, that have the, the right sort of access to the front line, I think is, is one thing. Um, I think secondly, is being really, really aware, really dialing up um, your, your emotional intelligence to, to understand the optics of every decision you take are, are going to be judged. And whether that's the, the color palette that you use on a PowerPoint presentation or the way you, you use a communication or that you might refer to we as in your old organization as opposed to we in the new organization, I think you've really got to take time, um, both yourself and your, and your immediate leadership group, to understand um, those kind of things and be very, very aware of them. And then to call each other out. If you feel that, that perhaps you're, you're overweighted or you're a bit blind, um, you've got a blind spot on a particular issue, is you really need people to call you out so that you can, you can adjust yourself. And I think empathy is, is critical. Um, people go through fear of job loss. They go through fear of change. Um, and we, we have to be respectful of that and understand that change can be confronting for people. And sometimes the decisions we take in leadership particularly together with consultants are decisions that are taken on a, on a spreadsheet, they're numerical decisions, and people aren't numbers. Human beings are human beings and not robots for a reason. And we need to remember that um, and be able to translate some of those tough decisions we have to take into very human ways. Um, and that, that for me is, a, is the, absolutely the, the formula. Thank you, Andrew. So we'll talk 
talking in detail about Margaret River, but prior to that, if we can, I could congratulate you on the one year anniversary of HW Consultancy. And uh, my understanding is that your assignments to date have been quite broad, but really ranging from some private equity due diligence projects. And similarly, then when you were talking about the complexity of wholesalers that you've helped some hotel chains and groups on negotiations and a bit like a magician sharing how magic tricks are, are done. Are you able to talk through any that you don't have NDA or, you know, that you are able to share? Gareth, it's, it's been a, a great a great ride in this last year um, doing the consultancy, having left um, my, my senior positions with, with hotel beds and in wholesale and the like, and running in conjunction with, with owning my own small hotel. Um, and I really enjoy working with, with customers and partners, um, particularly around the advisory and education work of what, what's actually the reality. Um, because sometimes we perceive uh, something to be one thing but actually the reality is very different and specifically around distribution, the landscape is very complex. And I've been really in essence in my different leadership roles, um, I've been consulting with stakeholders, both internally and externally and consulting with them for, for well over a decade, um, particularly around this topic of, of distribution. And I'm really pleased that I can now do that with, a, with kind of a free hand, if you like, and without the the weight on my shoulders of, of having to be skewed to a particular organisation or element of, of distribution. Um, and I've really enjoyed um, yeah, talking to these partners. I particularly enjoyed uh, working on a due diligence deal last year, which again was around distribution. And it was an organisation that, that loved this company that they were investing in and they wanted to invest more money in. And that worried them. It worried them as to why they loved that organisation so much. And they really wanted me to help them understand well, what could the issues be? What could that black swan be that might come up that maybe they don't see because they're a bit clouded by um, perhaps some of the, uh, the stories that they hear directly from the organisation or um, some of that sort of analyst narrative that's in there. And that's where I can really help organisations get underneath and say, well, actually, have you thought about this? And the reality could be that. I equally um, enjoy doing some work with some small hotels and that's where I've been able to um, you know, really enjoy learning from, from being a hotelier and, and being hands-on as a hotel owner and how do you sort of apply the logic of big business and take it into a, a very small piece around running small hotels and where to focus energy and where the quick wins are and the like. And, and onto your... Um dream project, if you like, which was the Margaret River move and, and buying a business there and exiting the, the Asia Pacific corporate scene, if you like, to a degree to concentrate on your own thing. How did the idea come about? And was there much of a lag between what, what seems like an idea when people go on holiday, they always have ideas or picture themselves as how life might be like if you lived there. But was there a delay or how did it actually move from idea to reality? We kind of happened in two, in two stages, right? I'd always had a dream and along with Jules, my wife, we'd always had a dream of owning our own small hotel somewhere. I mean, a very simplistic fantasy of maybe having a few bungalows on a beach somewhere and sharing a few beers with, with some guests. Um, we, we, you know, we'd always talked about this on holidays and, oh, we could do this and it'd be really, really cool. Um, 
And it was kind of always an, an aspiration. It was on the life plan, but I didn't really um, go after it and I didn't really think it would happen so, so soon. And then in Singapore, you know, we were, we were already looking at, you know, how do we get our family into an environment where perhaps they're a little bit more embedded in a community. Our, our kids are sort of seven years old and we have twin boys that are five and we, we felt that they were sort of hitting that age. Um, we'd been expats for over, over 10 years. And so we kind of had this draw towards contributing more and being a part of a community. Um, and also I, I, I was finding in my career that, that the further up I went, the further away I got from where I wanted to add the most value. And I started spending more life with, with consultants at McKinsey and BCG and the like. Um, and they're big pocket squares and watches and great guys. But it was, I spent a lot of late nights looking at a lot of spreadsheets and managing the world of synergies and, and investment through spreadsheets. And um, it just really wasn't what I wanted to be about. Um, and so we knew that we wanted to exit Singapore and exit the, the role that I was in. Um, and I've always believed you should leave the party while you're still having fun. And we loved Singapore and we always thought, well, we might want to come back one day. So let's, let's, um, let's make the move while we still love it. And we, um, I know this, I went to a, I went to a seminar with a friend. I got invited to a seminar um, in Singapore a couple of years back, um, a Tony Robbins seminar, um, who I'm, you know, I, I really enjoy some of his, his thinking, you know, maybe not all of it, but um, I like looking at, at sort of, life coaches and the like and business coaches and, and, and finding one or two sort of um, moments and, and sound bites and the like that, that might resonate and apply to me. Um, and I, I accidentally went to this seminar because I was invited along. And a couple of things that really stood out to me over those three or four days was, was one was the ability to overcome the fear of loss of giving up the financial position of, of having your own job and having a good job and that you know, the, the career benefits, um, you know, along with the business class flights, Gareth, I, I enjoyed at the time. Um, and I had to overcome that fear of financial loss. And, and I, I managed to do that um, and, and quite easily. And once I'd done that, there was no holding back, right? I mean, and the other thing I took away from that seminar was if you want to make something happen, you have to take massive action. You can't just talk about it. You can't sit on the fence. You can't dabble with it. You have to take massive action. And so we did. I mean, right in the middle of this integration, right in the middle of one of the hardest periods of my career, um, you know, I really felt that it was time to raise up. And, and we, we said, right, well, we love Margaret River. We've been here on holidays a few times. Um, what a wonderful place of nature and wine, meeting together at the coast and a great community. And we thought, wow, we want to live there. We always want to own our own small hotel. So how do we make this happen? And within, literally within, um, Six months, we had bought um, this this uh, this business, Margaret River Holiday Cottages, and um, and started looking at well, how do we exit Singapore and, and move our way over? You've been in situ around two years, um, and Margaret River Holiday Cottages has had already some fantastic wins during that time. Is it possible to talk a little bit about how you repositioned the business and and also some of the parts of the holiday cottage business that you've really developed as brand codes that you're able to articulate as part of the overall holiday cottage story? 
Well, I think there were a couple of pieces to it, right? I think when we um, when we bought the business, um, it was a very it was a very transactional business. We bought from the original owners. It was in original condition. It was built in the late '80s, and the, the original owners had they'd done a wonderful job of keeping the bones of of this of this business, both structurally and, and as a business. But it was pretty tired, and the business was performing, you know, well below where where I anticipated that it it should perform. And so I would, um, we decided that that we would, um, we wanted to to reposition the business so that it wasn't transactional. So that when customers bought us, they weren't just buying on price. I mean, that was when we inherited the business. That's the way it felt. People bought us because we were either um, cheaper than the competitive set, or we were available when the others weren't available. So it was a price decision. Um, and I think any of the the industry listening on the on the podcast will will know that that's just a that's a dire position to be in unless that's really your, your business model. Um, and so we set about um, putting together um, loads of of words um, and thoughts around our brand positioning. So what would we want to be, um, and what would we want our guests to be saying about us for us to feel like we're doing the right things, and we kind of came up with this um, this brand code, if you like, that was around, we don't want to be luxury. We don't think Australia does luxury very well, um, not yet. I mean, we think there's a, there's a huge piece around labour cost that's, that's a bit of a concern. Um, but we didn't want to be luxury. We don't want to be bush comfy. You know, mid to upscale. And, and when you walked into our cottages, you need to feel comfy, homely. You wanted nice blankies um, to snuggle into and, and great beds and... Um, you wanted freshly split, locally sourced jarrow wood for your fireplace and sharp knives and big tapas boards and, and the like. And we wanted our guests to walk into our cottages and go, oh, that's clever. Oh, they've thought about that. Oh, what a smart move putting children's plates and cutlery in the cottages so I don't have to bring that with me. And we just found that ourselves when we travelled, I mean, a lot of these things were lacking. It was very... Uh, impersonal when we stayed in, in self-contained accommodation. It was hardly a picture on the wall and the eyes of one. And we just felt that actually guests would respond really well to, to, to that. I think secondly, we, um, we decided very early on that the accommodation needed to be, you know, where you sleep in, in this type of, of business is important. You know, the accommodation is important, but it's not everything. There'll always be someone who's got a better cottage, a bigger co cottage, a more luxurious cottage, a cheaper cottage, whatever. So the accommodation need to be really good, need to tell a great story, but it didn't need to be the best. But instead, what we needed to do was invest in the pluses. So in a business like ours, like in cottages, it was all about well, what, in addition to the accommodation, can I expect when they get here? So um, what we did was, was set about putting in the pluses. You know, Margaret River's only heated indoor swimming pool, um, an animal experience that wasn't feeding behind fences where children and, and, and adults alike could come along and bottle feed a, a rescued um, calf who was an orphan, or they might be able to, um, you know, meet some of our ducks, Zachary Quack and, and Gareth the ducks, and they might be able to um, pick up a lamb and, and or feed our alpacas or stroke a donkey and and really make it very hands-on, um, very tactile. Um, and, it, and, and we put in a, um, in our first year, we put in a, a massive fire pit. And instead of just putting a fire pit there, 
we took the time to light the fire pit for our guests each night. And we facilitated the, these, this kind of experience with our guests where their kids might learn to, to toast or roast the marshmallow and um, the parents might chat or watch the kangaroos in the paddock or put a log on the fire. And, and it comes all the way back to this, this, this piece of having a fire pit is one thing, how it makes you feel is what counts. Um, and that's really what, what we set about doing is in a, in a way, I mean, in a really strange way, really following some of those and adopting those principles that I learned way back at Atlantis about, about exactly that, about what's the story, what's the element, what's the memory. Um, and I think everyone, everyone can remember back to a time where they might have as a, as a child gone off to their auntie's farm one summer and, and learn how to milk a cow or, or um, shear a sheep or, um, you know, everyone has had an experience around fire in their life. Um, and how do you, how do you bring those memories out? So we really, we stuck very, very um, closely to that sort of narrative around bush comfy and providing pluses experiences. Um, and I think that's really, that's, that's been absolutely the winning formula um, and helped us, you know, move from being 2% direct business when we bought um, the cottages to being 60% plus of direct business um, where we're getting, we get enormous amounts of repeat customers. A lot of our guests just, they WhatsApp me when they want to have a cottage try. It's like being a maitre d' at a great restaurant um, because they don't even need to go online and look, they just want to know when are we available and, and when can we have them to come and stay. And that really, that's a, that's a wonderful, um, a wonderful gift and, and very, I'm very grateful for that and I'm very humbled by it. Um, and I think the third thing, right, and this really stands out for me, Gareth, um, and I'm really surprised that more hotels don't do this um, because in Airbnb, they're very good at it, but I don't think hotelier are yet very good at it. And that's, for me, everything in a hotel that tells a story is about the pre-arrival. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to back your execution when, when a guest arrives, right? You have to deliver. But if you've engaged successfully in the pre-arrival, then by the time someone gets here, you have a relationship. When you have a relationship, when things go really well, people love you. When things go wrong, they're forgiving and generous and they still love you. Um, and they, they're going to have that great experience because they've already had the experience before they arrive. And having a hotel experience is a bit like, it's a bit like going to an art gallery. Some people love the pictures on the wall and the artists and, and others do not. I mean, it's subjective about how you see it through, through that lens. But I think that if, if you've loved the pre-arrival, you've had a moment beforehand, um, then you're all the more likely to have a great experience when you arrive because you're already in, the, in that sort of flow of connection. And being a property that believes that, um, that the world has gone far too transactional in the hotel um, environment and we want to be the non-transactional where guests still want to have a connection of sorts, um, I think that pre-arrival piece is just everything. I'm a bit surprised that the startups that are out there these days, that there's a lot of money being thrown into how to streamline the operation and reduce costs and improve the operation. But I mean, if you, if you have the guest buy in before they arrive, a lot of that kind of stuff can be dealt with really easily once they, once they arrive and they're, they're staying with you. Well, a, a lot of that stems through behavioral science and, uh, there's, there's a, a guy, Rory Sutherland, who talks a lot, not so much about pre-arrival, but he talks about the incredible uh, importance of the check-in because 
you make apparently your decision as to whether you like that hotel or not very yeah. early on during the stay. And then you look for factors that confirm that decision. So, so if there were, if your check-in is not a good process or is not smooth, you will look for corroborating factors as to why that's a bad hotel. Whereas obviously the, the reverse is, is completely um, true. And, and as you said, the pre-arrival where you can have lovely correspondence, you can let people know about the destination, the area, any needs that they might have, then yeah, kudos to you for, uh, for creating such a great customized pre-arrival experience. And don't be afraid to be human in that in that approach. I mean, it doesn't have to be all digital and automated. I mean, obviously, as a 60-bedroom hotel, you can't necessarily call every guest before they arrive. But I really challenge any general manager to not be capable of picking up the phone and calling five people before they arrive each day. I mean, that's really not that difficult. And, you know, if once you get to know your guests, I mean, most of my guests now, they're, they're repeat guests, I'm not having to call them. You know, we might exchange a WhatsApp or something before they arrive. I might share some photos. They follow our social media, et cetera. They're part of our extended family when they arrive. Um, and, and what we do with our arrivals experience, and we, we learned this along the way. I mean, originally we would check people in here in the office. Um, and over time we just found, hey, that's transactional, right? I mean, bringing people into an office to check somebody in, why do we do that? I mean, if we've done all the paperwork and the payment before they arrive, why not go out and meet the guest as they arrive? And so we see them coming in and we have our animal feeding station because we, we feed the animals with guests. We have it right there at the arrivals experience. So often there is going to be one of our you know, eclectic menagerie just hanging around looking for a snack. Um, and there they are waiting and the guests arrive and they see the animals. They've driven up the driver and automatically they are disarmed. If they have kids in the car, the kids want to get out. They want to see what's going on. They want to touch it and feel it. And we can slow that guest down immediately. And then we encourage them to leave their car there and we walk them 50 metres up to their cottage. And during that, that five-minute walk, we have this great opportunity, a unique window with that guest to engage, to understand why they're here, what experience are they looking for, and to perhaps give them a little bit of an insight into how we see their stay unfolding. Um, and by the time they're at their, at their uh, cottage, I mean, that guest has ostensibly been taken care of for their stay. So if we see them then at animal feeding or at the fire pit or whatever, you're having just an engaging conversation with someone. You're not talking about operational stuff um, because that's been dealt with. And we learned that over time. At first we did it in the office and then we, we said, no, this, isn't, this just doesn't feel right. So um, the only time we really spend in the office with guests is if they want to come down and we out a map and we give them great tips on and inside stories on what to do but equally i'm happy to do that at the fire pit or with a donkey over my shoulder so how are jules bella and the twins enjoying life in margaret river yeah they love it gareth i mean the, the family are having a, a great life here the kids go to the local montessori school it's a couple of k's up the road soon they'll be riding their bikes on the trails to get to school each morning um but what i love more than anything right is watching your kids grow up in a you know, a hotel environment um, and watching the social benefits of that. So you imagine that, that my kids, um, you know, they have to make new friends all the time and then they have to learn to say goodbye. Um, and I love it. You know, Bella, our, our youngest at seven years old, she's figured out that if she comes to animal feeding and positions herself as my trusty assistant, that she'll be able to find new friends instantly. So she doesn't, she doesn't go to the animal feeding just because she loves the animals. 
she goes there because she knows it's a platform and a vehicle to make great friends. And, you know, I've watched my five-year-old son, Jonah, check guests in and check guests out. And that's, that's a, a real gift that perhaps they don't realise just yet, Gareth, but one day they will. One of the things that you obviously did when you had the, the senior job in, a, in Singapore when the integration was going on, obviously running was a great outlet for stress relief and everything else. And you've done Pyongyang Marathon, you've run across Mongolia, Siem Reap, Sapa in Vietnam. Post lockdown, where, where's your dream running event that will allow you to get away from the holiday cottages for a few days? Well, you know, Gareth, I'd love to come back up to, to Asia and do some running up there. I really, it's one of my things that I loved most about traveling around Asia was, um, was some of the great, the great running that, that we've all done. I mean, we have a great run here on our doorstep, the, the Cape to Cape um, Ultra Marathon. It happens again in May this year. We, I did a, a leg last year. Um, and we just had um, the, uh, the very um, successful endurance athlete, Samantha Gash, stayed with us as she broke the record for the fastest unsupported Cape to Cape, which was very inspiring to run 138 Ks in uh, 20 hours, 47 minutes that, that she did. Um, so, you know, I think there's some great trail running here in, in Western Australia as well. And, and you know, it's, it's funny, Gareth, for a guy that, that spent every couple of days on a plane somewhere in the world, um, I really don't miss flying at all. I mean, I've been on one plane in, in two years and I feel so content with and so blessed to be surrounded by the freshest air on the planet and the rich um, mottled light in the afternoon and the, and the greenery and the sense of space that we have here in Margaret River in Western Australia. I just, I don't know where else I'd, like, I'd rather be right now. Well, thank you ever so much for your rich stories and, and taking us through your remarkable career from the early days in Australia via Germany, via Dubai, via Singapore to now Margaret River. It's really appreciated, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me, Gareth. I hope, uh, hope you guys enjoy it. All the very best and speak soon. Speak soon.